It's the 3rd of May, in the year of our salvation, 2009. It's the 4th Sunday of Easter in the post-conciliar calendar used for the Novus Ordo. And you're back with Father Z, Father John Zolsdorf, and another podcast. We welcome as our guest today... St. Pope Gregory I, Gregory the Great, who died in 604. We will hear part of a sermon that he gave on Good Shepherd Sunday, this Sunday many centuries ago. His words still ring clear and true in our own ears, in our own difficult times. I have introduced Gregory in previous podcasts, but a reintroduction is in order, I think, because I haven't talked about Gregory the Great for a while. Let's get some help from the great patristic scholar and professor Hubertus Drobner, a great German scholar who published his own basic patrology volume called The Fathers of the Church, A Comprehensive Introduction. I'll make sure that there is a a link to it on the blog in case you're interested in this book. Now, the translation from German into English is a little patchy in places, not entirely smooth, but there is nothing here that you won't grasp pretty easily as I read it. So here is Drubner's brief bio of Pope Gregory I. Consul Dei, Consul of God. The epitaph of Gregory the Great in the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome describes most concisely the dual public and ecclesiastical function this Pope had to fulfill in response to the demands of his time. He mastered these with such distinction that he is called the Great, an honor accorded to only a few in the history of the Church, and, together with Ambrose, Jerome, and Augustine, is ranked among the four great doctors of the church. Beginning in 535, Byzantium had once again united Italy with the Roman Empire. Northern and central Italy, however, were lost to the Lombards in 568, so that only the exarchates of Ravenna and Rome, as well as southern Italy and Sicily, remained Roman, Byzantine territory. In 585, Leovigild, the king of the Visigoths, subjected all of Spain to his rule. His son, Recared, converted from Arianism to Catholicism in 587. Since Clovis, who died in 511, the kingdom of the Franks had become the major power in Western Europe, but through acceptance of the Catholic faith in 498 or 499, It had also become the bearer of the Church's hope and an integrative factor. In this power play between Byzantium, the Lombards, the Franks, and the Goths, 
it was Gregory to whom the difficult task fell from 590 on to guard the Patrimonium Petri, and to promote the faith in the Western churches. This involved, on the one hand, politics, administration, and social engagement, and, on the other, proclamation of the faith and mission. Like many other bishops from the Christian upper strata since the 4th century, who had assumed both governmental and ecclesiastical leadership positions, Gregory was particularly suited and prepared for this, given his background, education, and career. He was born around 540 into a family of patrician rank, related to the Anicii, a family with a tradition of both public office and ecclesiastical piety. Two of his predecessors had already served as Pope, Felix III and Agapetus. His father was Regionarius, presumably an office in the papal administration, and three of his aunts were nuns. Gregory also received a thoroughly classical education, which apparently was still available in 6th century Rome, according to his writings, and chose the cursus honorum in keeping with his family's tradition. As Praefectus Urbi in 572 to 573, he was the highest-ranking official of Rome's civilian administration. This required commensurately excellent knowledge and experience, and later on these were to be of great benefit to him in his papal role. In 574 he relinquished his public career, however, and, following the tradition that had been treasured since the Cappadocians and carried out up to Cassiodorus, withdrew to a monastic community in the family estate on the Chalian, one of the seven hills of Rome. He converted the latter into a monastery dedicated to St. Andrew, albeit without serving as its abbot. In addition, he founded six further monasteries on family estates in Sicily. No doubt Gregory introduced a Benedictine atmosphere in his monasteries, for during this time he read the rule of Benedict, and his dialogues attest to his high esteem of Benedict. Nevertheless, the rule was not adopted formally. Gregory devoted the years of the monastery to an intensive study of Scripture and the Fathers, Jerome, Augustine, Benedict, John Cashin, and thereby augmented his secular education with an equally sound theological one, which was to be of benefit to him in managing his later office. As in the case of Basil the Great and Augustine, he was not to be granted the pleasure of completing his life in monastic seclusion, the ecclesiastical hierarchy was desperately in need of his abilities. Throughout his life he longed, albeit for naught, to be able to return from the necessary vita activa to the monastic vita contemplativa. The Lombards' advances into central Italy increasingly severed Rome from the residence of the Italian exarch at Ravenna, so that the Pope was forced by means of an ambassador, Apocrisiarius, to maintain direct contact with the emperor and the governmental offices in Constantinople in order to negotiate assistance for a beleaguered Italy. To this end, Pope Benedict, 575-579, or Pelagius II, 579-590, to 590, appointed Gregory in 579 and ordained him a deacon. His stay in the imperial capital completed Gregory's 
sophisticated political and ecclesiastical political experiences and enabled him to establish numerous important and lifelong relationships, for instance, with Leander of Seville, that were to be of benefit to him at a later time. In 585-586, the Pope recalled him from Constantinople, probably because his expectations for the possibility of diplomatic results remained unfulfilled, and after Gregory had returned to the monastery of St. Andrew as a monk, he made him one of his important advisers. The winter of 589-590 brought a disastrous flood and famine, followed by an epidemic of the plague, to which Pope Pelagius II succumbed on February 7th or 8th in 590. As a deacon, the task of the social and charitable care of the population fell upon Gregory, so enhancing his popularity that he was elected spontaneously as the successor to the Episcopal See of Rome. On September 3rd, 590, when the imperial confirmation had been received, he was consecrated and enthroned. The account of Gregory's hesitation in assuming the office had indeed been a part of the hagiographic topoi since the 4th century, Augustine, Martin of Tours, and later legends significantly embellished it with escape attempts. Nevertheless, the historical core, in any case, is not subject to doubt. This is particularly true of Gregory, who did not want to give up his monastic lifestyle, and who was so feeble and sick throughout his pontificate that he spent most of his time in bed and was not able to preach in public any longer. This did not, however, cause him to shy away from his obligations. His chancery's list of 857 letters provides vivid information about the complex, extensive, and difficult tasks he had to deal with during the 14 years of his pontificate until his death on March 13, 604. That was Hubertus Drobner's uh, brief introduction to Gregory the Great, in his volume called Fathers of the Church, a comprehensive introduction. A very useful, um, very useful little bio, just to help us get the right context, know who we're dealing with. Now, what we are going to hear from Pope Gregory today is uh, an excerpt from a sermon found in today's Office of Readings in the Liturgy of the Hours for this fourth Sunday of Easter, nicknamed Good Shepherd Sunday. Now, in the older traditional Roman calendar, the second Sunday after Easter, that is, a week after the octave, was Good Shepherd Sunday because the gospel on that day was from John chapter 10. And in the newer uh, post-conciliar calendar, Good Shepherd Sunday is what we call the fourth Sunday of Easter, three weeks after Easter because, of course, uh, the gospel of John chapter 10 is read on this Sunday. And uh, let's hear that uh, the pertinent reading or pericope from St. John chapter 10. Jesus said, 
I am the good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hired man who is not a shepherd and whose sheep are not his own sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf catches and scatters them. This is because he works for pay and has no concern for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. These also I must lead, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. The imagery of God as a shepherd was, of course, already present in the Old Testament. Uh, you all know Psalm 23, very famous psalm, and also in Isaiah 40, which you might want to pick up and read. Uh, of course, you know, the reverse pertains as well. You know, when uh, Christ refers to himself as shepherd, people immediately caught the references because they knew Scripture. And he, they knew that he was associating himself with the divinity who was called shepherd, as in, you know, of course, Psalm 23. And that's why when he says he is the shepherd, the good shepherd, some of the people there figured out what he was saying. He's referring to himself as God. And uh, they thought he was either insane or, you know, terrible blasphemer. And they picked up stones to throw at him. You know, read the rest of that chapter. You see that they pick up stones. And uh, in the moment that Christ, in that moment, Christ is also talking about laying down his life and taking it up again. Well, not just anybody can do that. So uh, Christ is uh, associating himself with that imagery of God as shepherd in the Old Testament. And they understood exactly what he was talking about. And uh, if we also stop to think about other moments when shepherds uh, are are important in Scripture, just off the top of my head, I can uh, think of uh, Abel, for example. Abel was a shepherd. Uh, Abel, of course, was slain vilely after God preferred his offering rather than Cain's. And um, we also have Christ standing by the sea with Peter, telling Peter to feed his lambs, feed his sheep, telling him three times. And so Christ is drawing Peter more closely to his own role as shepherd of the whole flock of God, not just the chosen people, but all the Gentiles. Everyone who will be brought into Christ's fold will be entrusted to Peter. So this gospel account in John 10 as 
well as in Psalm 23, uh, wound up inspiring early Christians to depict Jesus very often as a shepherd. Uh, sometimes you'll find him uh, as a as a shepherd with a with a sheep over his shoulders. Uh, there are ancient carved tomb fronts, sarcophaguses in the catacombs, and there are mosaics in the churches of Rome and Ravenna and elsewhere where. Christ is shown as a shepherd. And in the mosaics, uh, as a matter of fact, in the Roman churches, uh, Christ is shown surrounded uh, by a little procession of very courtly, very elegant sheep, stepping along with very stylish gestures and little hooves. But they are all very intent on their master. And uh, you can see this uh, this him surrounded with sheep also when he is being depicted more in the manner of an emperor or a teacher. This pastoral theme remains. And uh, just also off the top of my head, I'm kind of doing a little free association here. You can th- remember how the early in early Christian writings, very early writing, we have something called the Shepherd of Hermas, which was very important in the early church. It was an allegorical work, with strong moral content, uh, eventually, the church would come to determine that this was not one of those works that was inspired by God, but it was read very widely. It was read in the liturgy, and uh, in the the Shepherd of Hermas, one of the one of the visions that the shepherd has is of an angel coming to him in the guise of a shepherd, and this uh, angel, as shepherd, gives him uh, moral precepts that have to be followed. But in any event. Christ in the early church is depicted um, both as lamb and as the shepherd. Of course, he is both victim for our sins and also he's the priest who offers the victim as well. So, uh, well, let's move on to Gregory. Now, what we're going to hear is from Gregory's Sermon 14. And uh, this sermon was preached by the great Pope probably in the Constantinian Basilica of St. Peter on the Vatican Hill, this massive church that was built over Peter's tomb. And it was preached on the second Sunday after Easter, which, of course, as I said before, through all those centuries was considered Good Shepherd Sunday. That's when this gospel was read on the second Sunday after Easter, not the fourth Sunday of Easter. You see, they got it. You know, they just had to tinker around with these things, didn't they? Centuries and centuries we do it, and then suddenly, you know, let's let's all change everything. Now, as you listen, you might want to keep your ears tuned for a couple things. First of all, keep in mind that we are several paragraphs into this sermon, and Gregory has been talking about, in the first part, about the trepidation that pastors really should have if they are going to be shepherds for Christ's flock, you know, you know the the Lord in the Gospel talks about wolves, and uh, you know the enemies of the flock, and they have to stand there, and fight them off, be attacked by them, uh, himself, uh, in place of the flock. The pastors of the church, the shepherds, are going to be attacked by Satan, by the enemy, and by Satan's servants in the secular realm. But at the beginning of the section that we are going to hear, 
I think it starts with paragraph three in, in Sermon 14. Gregory turns it around a little bit and he describes the tests and trials not only for the pastors, the shepherds, but the trials for the flock. It's not just the pastors that are going to be tested. The flock has their own trial to undergo. Now, to get at this, what Gregory does is he makes a connection between the light of truth and true love. And both of these things have consequences. But to follow Christ, and of course to follow Christ's shepherds too, it takes more than just like an intellectual understanding of the faith. The light of faith and the light of truth must produce something else. We have to go beyond formulas, don't we? It it requires the love which comes from the truth, and that love then leads to action. And that's what Gregory's point is here. We have to act with determination. Also, listen to how Gregory says that the rewards Christ won for us, the reward of heaven, can be lost. We, as pilgrims, have to be careful not to be stupid pilgrims or distracted pilgrims and uh, get all sidetracked by the things of this world and get off course or perhaps not make progress. So with those, uh, you know, a few little talking points, let's now hear the excerpt from Sermon 14 by Pope Gregory the Great, the great saint who died in 604, preaching to his flock on the second Sunday after Easter in the Vatican Basilica. Ego sum pastor bonus, et cognosco oves meas, hoc est diligo, et cognoscunt me mee. Axi patenter dicat diligentes obsequuntur, qui enim veritatem non diligit, adhuc minime cognovit. Quia ergo audistis, fratres carissimi, periculum nostrum, Pensate in verbis dominicis et siam periculum vestrum. Videte si oves eus estis, videte si eum cognoscitis, videte si lumen veritatis citis. Citis autem, dico, non perfidem, sed per amorem. Citis, dico, non ex creduditate, sed ex operatione. Nam idem ipse qui hoc loquitur, Ioannes Evangelista testatur dicens, qui dicet se nosse Deum, et mandata eius non custodit, mendax est. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, by which I mean I love them, and my own know me. In plain words, those who love me are willing to follow me. For anyone who does not love the truth has not yet come to know it. My dear brethren, you have heard the test we pastors have to undergo. Turn now to consider how these words of our Lord imply a test for yourselves also. Ask yourselves whether you belong to his flock, whether you know him, whether the light of his truth shines in your minds. I assure you, that it is not by faith that you will come to know him, but by love, not by mere conviction, but by action. 
John the Evangelist is my authority for this statement. He tells us that anyone who claims to know God without keeping his commandments is a liar. Consequently, the Lord immediately adds, As the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. Clearly he means that laying down his life for his sheep gives evidence of his knowledge of the Father and the Father's knowledge of him. In other words, by the love with which he dies for his sheep, he shows how greatly he loves his Father. Again he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. Shortly before this he had declared, If anyone enters the sheepfold through me, he shall be saved. He shall go freely in and out, and shall find good pasture. He will enter into a life of faith. From faith he will go out to vision, from belief to contemplation, and will graze in the good pastures of everlasting life. So our Lord's sheep will finally reach their grazing ground, where all who follow him in simplicity of heart will feed on the green pastures of eternity. These pastures are the spiritual joys of heaven. There the elect look upon the face of God with unclouded vision and feast at the banquet of life forevermore. Beloved brothers, let us set out for these pastures where we shall keep joyful festival with so many of our fellow citizens. May the thought of their happiness urge us on. Let us stir up our hearts, rekindle our faith, and long eagerly for what heaven has in store for us. To love thus is to be already on our way. No matter what obstacles we encounter, we must not allow them to turn us aside from the joy of that heavenly feast. Anyone who is determined to reach his destination is not deterred by the roughness of the road that leads to it. Nor must we allow the charm of success to seduce us, or we shall be like a foolish traveler who is so distracted by the pleasant meadows through which he is passing that he forgets where he is going. Acendamus ergo animum, fratres, recalescat fides in id quod credidit, in adescant ad superna nostra desideria, et sic amare iam ire est. Ab interne solemnitatis gaudio nulla nos adversitas rebocet, quia et quis ad locum propositum ire desiderat, Eus desiderium quelibet vie asperitas non imutat. Nulla nos prosperitas blandiens seducat, quia stultus fiator est, qui in itinere a myrna prata conspiciens oblivicitur ire quo tendebat.
That was an excerpt from Sermon 14 by St. Pope Gregory I, the Great. Now, I'd like to go back to a couple points. Uh, First of all, you might consider that we do not become true disciples of the Lord only by working through arguments uh, or, you know, maybe just pondering, for example, the faith in which we believe. We also have to act, don't we? And in this sense, think about what a gift it is to have shepherds who have authority, who can guide us in the proper way. Also, uh, in regard to that traveler out there on the road who doesn't get to his destination, Gregory is warning us about, isn't it the case that we usually think of perhaps getting off the track? For example, like Dante, uh, who strays off into the dark wood, or you know, perhaps going off the road into the ditch. Sometimes I talk about us being able to go into the ditch on either side of the road, the right or the left. You know, by either way, we're still in the ditch, right? But the fact is, is that we've gone astray, and therefore we don't get to our proper destination. But think about it this way. Another way to f- you know, fail to reach the goal is not necessarily to go astray, but simply to slow down and not make the forward progress needed to get to the goal. Now, each one of us has a vocation in life. You know, we're given work to do. And it may be that a person is not going wildly astray in his or her, her vocation, you know, some obvious way. But it may very well be that he's tepid or mediocre or unwilling to make progress to the next step when the circumstances call for adjustments. Though it may be that such a person lacks that impulse of zeal when the circumstances are hard. But there are also those circumstances that are, you know, when things are easy, it's possible to bog down. Now, if you, uh, you know, take a look at your state in life, as it is here and now, not some kind of like fantasy land state, you know, not as it really would have preferred it to be, or maybe as it was once upon a time, or as it, as, uh, it could be someday, or maybe somebody else's state in life that you're, you know, not really living, but as your state in life, as it is really here and now in the heek nunc, if you take a look at your state, the circumstances of your life, your own particular, uh, talents and gifts and inclinations, and perhaps with consultation of someone who has real charity for you, real sacrificial love, which truly desires your true good rather than his own good, you know, with you as an object or something like that. Or you consult authority. Remember, God has given you uh, authority figures in the church as a gift. And then perhaps, you know, examining your own conscience. It may be that you're finding yourself to be not quite making that progress that you need in your own particular vocation. Or perhaps even as a couple in your vocations, if you're married. Well, remember that Gregory is reminding us on this Good Shepherd Sunday to stir ourselves up, to rekindle our faith, to rekindle our longing 
for that destination. We have to be determined to reach our destination. You know, sometimes the shepherd has to get out there and beat the sheep with a stick to keep moving so they don't just, you know, wander off the path. True, get into trouble by, you know, going into the wrong place, but just, you know, also by not moving at all, just by lying down and sitting there. Sometimes they have to have a, you know, like a border collie or something nipping at their heels to move them all in the right direction. We have to be determined to reach our destination, the one that Christ opened up for us. The core message of the good news is that Christ won for us our citizenship, our our ticket into heaven as sons and daughters of God in the freedom of sons and daughters. We are citizens of a kingdom of heaven. But we can lose that membership in heaven by our own lack of determination, our own lack of action. Faith will certainly be necessary to bring us to heaven, but on the other hand, that entrance token of our faith, the flip side is our is our works too. And Christ gives us work to do. He gives us a vocation. God knew us from before the creation of the universe, and he calls us into a particular time, particular moment, and he gives us something to do. And then he makes us strong enough to carry out his will, and then he takes what we've done and he perfects it both as our own work and as his work. So, do not stir from your path and don't just uh, sit down in the middle of the road to fritter or to forget who you are. With that, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. Come and visit us at the blog, WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. If that's a little hard to remember, if you want to tell your friends about it, you might also use the address FatherZonline.com. That's F A T H E R Z Online.com. We have good discussions uh, conducted by good people. Don't just read. Uh, participate also by posting. And if you would, in your charity, remember to pray for me as I do for you, I would be very grateful. Until next time, this is Father Z.